Let me invite you now to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, and today we will read from chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, but our focus will be um, verse 11. Today we're going to um, study together and look together at the sovereignty of God. And I will just put this as simply as I know how to put it. If God is not sovereign, he is not God. It couldn't be any clearer than that. If God is not sovereign, he is not God. Some, if something is sovereign over him, then that would be God. Now, that's not to say that human beings don't want to be sovereign over him. We do. We would love to have our moments and ask him to remove himself from the throne and let me occupy it for a while and I think I could fix everything. How deceived can we be? But we think that sometimes. Um, and if you say you haven't, then you haven't been in trouble yet. Um, that said, hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. And we do pray that the same spirit who inspired these words would open our hearts to hear the truth today so that we may produce fruit or you may produce fruit in us which we would bear uh, to, so that the world may see your glory and be moved by it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're thinking about the sovereignty of God, and we're going to look at it in three ways, and we could look at this for years, forever. But uh, it is a glorious truth, and I think it is foundational to any life 
uh, that would be called Christian. If you read the opening verse of the Bible in Hebrew, it's Bereshit, Elohim, Bara, Hashamayim, Haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible offers no explanation of who God is. It presupposes God, and it presupposes God as the one who creates out of nothing. God is sovereign over all, sovereign over creation, but the Bible doesn't really present any proof of God. It just recognizes the godness of God. By the way, that's what R.C. Sproul called the sovereignty of God, is the godness of God. Without it, he is no longer God. And so, Sproul used to talk a lot about what he called the maverick molecule. A molecule that is floating in space operates completely and independently of the providential government of God. God has no power or authority over this maverick molecule. A maverick, a maverick uh, as a maverick, it does whatever it wants to do without any consideration of the divine will. Sproul goes on to say when he was in high school, he anticipated the Indianapolis 500 race on Memorial Day. And one of his heroes was Bill Vukovic, the king of race car drivers. In the 1952 race, I recognize that was a year before I was born, so there we go. In the 1952 race, Vukovic was headed for victory when on the 192nd lap, he lost his steering, hit the wall, and had to abandon the race. Experts later discovered that a 10-cent cotter pin on the steering arm had given out. He said, I remembered reading about this in the paper and thinking of this old ditty. For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the war was lost, all because of one nail in one horseshoe. More tragically, in 1955, Vukovic, again in the lead, was killed when a multi-crash car sent his car airborne over the retaining wall. By one account, the chain reaction began when one of the several cars he was lapping swerved as a result of a gust of wind. Some apparently insignificant detail, like a maverick molecule going in a particular direction, can have radical consequences. One historian contended contended that the history of Western civilization was changed by a grain of sand in Oliver Cromwell's kidney, which caused his demise. A bug bit Alexander the Great and changed the course of human history. Some people say the devil is in the details, but Christians should say that God is in the details. As our Lord himself said, not a single bird lands on the ground apart from the Father's knowledge. Even the hairs of our heads are numbered. God knows everything. That is, he knows about everything there is. He knows us comprehensively. He knows all contingent things. Things that we could uh, say or things that could have happened but didn't. God knew on those memorial days in Indianapolis that a cotter pin could shear and, or remain intact, that a gust of wind could lead to a crash, or that Vukovic could survive unscathed. God knows all contingencies because God is sovereign. 
Our own confession says that God foreordains everything that comes to pass. But I want to play what if for a second. I want you to think this way. Think from the negative for a moment. If God is not absolutely sovereign over the created order and the universe, then who or what is? Who or what is? Sometimes the, considering the alternative is quite illuminating. What are we left with if we deny this bedrock truth? How about something like chance or fate or some variation of demigods fighting it out or the ultimate cosmic duel between good and evil? Everything would be random. It would be capricious. There would be no hat, a pattern. There would be no order. There would be no history. There would be no destiny. There would be no future. Life would be absurd. It'd be a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. There would be no viable concept of history as linear. And so there would be no coherence or meaning in life. Everything would be a Seinfeld episode, a show about nothing, if God is not sovereign. Everything is out of control. Prayer would be an utter waste of time. Hope would be swallowed up by absolute despair. The world would have no purpose. Everyone would be a nihilist. The problem of evil would be totally unsolvable. To deny the sovereignty of God is to open a Pandora's box or a proverbial can of worms. If God is not sovereign, God is not God. And if God is not God, then there is no God. And if there is no God, nothing matters. Nothing. So aren't you glad to know from the Scripture that our God is sovereign? And what I want to do for the next few moments is sort of define what that means. The hardest thing for me to do with this message today is to editorialize because uh, I really enjoyed studying this. Uh, the Scriptures make clear that God is sovereign in creation, providence, redemption, and judgment. It is a central assertion of just theism. Not Christianity, but theism. And so to put it another way, nothing happens without God willing it to happen, willing it to happen before it happens, willing it to happen the way it happens. And so God is absolutely sovereign. John Murray put it this way. He said... The sovereignty of God is the absolute rule and government of God in the whole of reality that exists distinct from himself. It respects his relation to other beings and to all other beings and existence. The possession and exercise of this absolute authority, rule, and government are founded upon certain basic truths about God. First of all, the sovereignty of God is founded upon the oneness or the unity of God. Now, all of these qualities that I'm mentioning about God, I would highly recommend, if you want to know more about them, go to our website, Sunday School Class on the Attributes of God by Mark Anderson. He'll explain. He'll fill in what I can't today in an hour. So, the sovereignty of God is founded upon the oneness of God. This truth underlies and determines the whole fabric of divine revelation. And it is a truth to which Scripture bears witness to in a variety of ways. The oneness of God does not mean mere uniqueness or supremacy in the realm of deity. 
It's not as if there were a host of lesser gods over whom God is supreme. It's not as if he demanded of us uh, the highest worship in contrast with the lower worship that may be given to others. It is rather that he alone is God and that there is none besides him. The Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. The Lord, he is God in heaven above and the earth belief, uh, beneath, and there is none. Deuteronomy 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. Thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Our responsibility to God is based on his oneness. When our Lord was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment of all, or what commandment is first of all, he answered this way. The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And so the consequence for us is we shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we shall love our neighbor as ourselves. Thou shalt worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Our salvation is also based on the fact that God is one and there is none other. This is shown, for example, in the way in which the Apostle Paul supports the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, by appealing to the oneness of God. He says it this way. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. If so be that God is one who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. The logic is simple and irresistible. God is sovereign in the realms of nature and grace and that sovereignty belongs to him because he is one without peer or rival. The sovereignty of God is also found upon the aseity of God. And the aseity of God may be a phrase you've never heard before. Other words used to describe it are words like self-existence. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. God contains within himself being. He is absolute being. Pure being. To help you understand the difference we exist God bees I can't think of a better word God God has being we exist the word exist ex means out of isness means being I get my being out of God God gets his being out of himself God in and of himself is the fountain of life and being I read an interesting statement on that coming from another Reformed theologian named Huxma, and he said this, The aseity of God is that virtue of God according to which he is of and in and through himself and has the eternal ground and fountain of being within himself is not caused by or dependent on any being outside of himself and is therefore the absolute pure being who is perfectly self-sufficient and has no need of any being outside of himself. In this virtue he's wholly different from the creature for he is the creator and therefore the sovereign one of whom and through whom and unto whom all exist. He is. Is. That's what his name means, Yahweh. 
Yahweh, the name that Israelites thought was too holy to say, Yahweh is simply the Hebrew form of the word for being. Being. God has within himself the power to be and the power to cause others to exist. If God were to lift his hand any moment from your life, you'd die instantly. God not only creates, but he preserves and sustains what he creates. Now these concepts I know are a little bit large, but you need to have some depth in your understanding of the sovereignty of God. Since God is one and there's none else beside him, he does not owe his existence to any other. Uh, indeed, origin cannot be imp- uh, applied to him. His existence is without beginning and eternal. Listen to what he says in Psalms 90. Before the fat mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our finite minds cannot wrap themselves around the glory of this truth. We stagger when we try to bring this truth into our comprehension. We cannot comprehend it. It is too high, and we cannot attain to it. He's God, and we're not. We're finite, limited, sinful creatures. That's why I think it's so stupid to argue with God or think that you're smarter than God, which I find myself doing often. So am I really stupid? Sometimes. Sometimes. I cannot believe how stupid I am. But we must humbly and joyfully receive that God is without origin. And he is not dependent upon any for his eternal and unchangeable being. The sovereignty of God is also found upon the self-sufficiency of God. Not only is he self-existent, but he is in himself sufficient. He does not know need of any created existence to complete his perfection and blessedness. I remember going to a church one time where the pastor went on and on about how lonely God was. And so he created man to fulfill his loneliness and desire for communion. God is not lonely. God is not lonely at all. He's perfectly content in and of himself. Created reality is not a necessity arising from his being, but an effect that results upon his sovereign will. And so the sovereignty of God is grounded and founded upon the fact of creation. If you do read the Psalms a lot, you will see a lot of the theology of creation. Why is it there? You know why I think it's mainly there? Because you and I are people who have problems. You and I are people who struggle. You and I are people who don't have answers. And so we're finding ourselves struggling and wondering. And so God just consistently says, I spoke into the nothing. And I ordered creation to be simply by divine fiat. I spoke. It came into being. You think you got a problem too big for me? You think there's anything impossible for me? Creation theology is to stoke your faith. If God can order creation ex nihilo out of nothing, certainly he can take care of your aching toe or other problems you may have. Now, I say that that way, and I struggle to consistently remember these things all the time. But creation means simply the origination and existence by divine fiat or by divine command. The moment we admit the existence of anything apart from God, 
and his will as the principle of its origin, in that moment we have denied the absoluteness of divine authority and rule. And so scripture, over and over again, especially in the Psalms, tell us of God's sovereignty in creation. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And so the mode of the statement always reminds us of the first chapter of Genesis, where on repeated occasions we have the formula, and God said, God made the heaven and earth. By his spirit the heavens were garnished. He laid the foundations of the earth. By his wisdom he founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. His hands stretched out the heavens and all their host. He commanded heaven and earth. His hands made. And so all things came to be. He is the first, the last, the alpha, the omega. He is the beginning of creation. By his will heaven and earth were created. And so scripture over and over and over again addresses God's sovereignty in the realm of creation. And the godliness on which scripture places its seal as true godliness recognizes the uh, God as creator and man's address to God in adoration, prayer, and praise begins with that. God's address to men in law and gospel rests upon that. And so Paul makes his appeal to the uh, idolatrous Athenians in um, the book of Acts where he said, God made the world and all therein being the Lord of heaven and dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And so when we look at God's sovereignty, we have found that the sovereignty of God rests upon what? His oneness his self-existence, his self-sufficiency, and his creatorhood, the godness of God. And so what does that sovereignty consist? God's sovereignty consists in the fact that God owns everything. He is the possessor of all. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell in it. God's sovereignty also consists in the right of dominion and rule over all. His kingdom is over all. He's the God of the whole earth. He is the most high who rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. God's sovereignty consists in the all-pervasive and efficient exercise of government. It's not merely that God is the owner of all, nor is it simply that he has a right of dominion to rule over all. But it is he who also exercises government in all accordance with his perfections, in accordance with the prerogatives that are his because of his ownership and all uh, of all and the right to dominion over all. And so God governs with omnipotence and irresistible efficiency. The mighty hand of God executes his will. God, we don't believe in a, a deist kind of God, a God who created the world, set in motion the laws of nature, and hurled the world out into space to operate on its own, and when things get too bad, he might intervene, but rather he's detached. No, in him we live and move and have our being. God is both transcendent, high above us, but he is imminent, near to every one of us. God 
Omnipresence means that the entirety of God's being is present in every point of space. Now, God is not creation, but God dwells in creation. And so, when we think of God, it stretches us uh, beyond all things. And so, it also, and this is where... uh, People get a little bit nervous. It respects the disposition of all earthly sovereignty. Uh, let, me, let me go back a minute and say one thing I forgot to say. Um, God's sovereignty respects the events of ordinary providence. It is God who gives rain upon the just and the unjust. He makes his sun to rise upon the evil and the good. He clothes the grass of the field, causing the grass to grow for cattle and herb for the service of man. He feeds the birds of heaven. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without his notice and knowledge. He gives us our daily bread. He gives wine that makes the heart of man glad, oil that makes his face to shine, and bread that strengthens man's heart. He crowns the year with goodness, and paths drop fatness. He even gives that which is abused and used in the service of another god. He gave grain and new wine and oil and multiplied silver and gold that his people used for Baal. He makes the wind his messengers and the flames of fire his ministers. The whole earth is filled with his glory, so that the pious contemplation of his working brings forth the exclamation of adoration, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your riches. But God's sovereignty also respects the disposition of all earthly authority. He alone is God of all the kingdoms of the earth. He removes kings and sets up kings for as the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. He sets them up, even the lowest of men. It is he who gives to ungodly men the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. He overthrows the throne and the strength of kingdoms. The very division of the kingdom of Israel fraught with dire consequences for true worship of Yahweh was the thing brought about by the Lord. So he ordains kings for judgment and establishes them for correction. Assyria was his rod of anger and the staff in the hand of divine indignation to perform divine judgment upon Mount Zion and Jerusalem. Pagans were used to discipline God's people. By the way, in November, I hear we're all going to vote for uh, people to uh, lead the country. And you're going to vote, and I'm going to vote, and everybody's registered to vote is going to vote. We'll vote as often as much as possible. No, just once. <laughs> and uh, God's going to vote for somebody. I don't know who. We'll find out, won't we? But God's government extends everywhere. The powers of civil government are ordained by God to be the ministers of equity and good and peace for the punishment of evildoers for the praise of them that do well. God's sovereignty also respects good and evil. Even the sins of men come within the scope of his rule and providence. Job said, shall we not receive good at the hand of the Lord and shall we not receive evil? 
For with God, he says again, is wisdom and strength. He has his counsel and understanding. Behold, he breaks down and it cannot be built again. He shuts up a man and there can be no opening. He forms the light. He creates the darkness. He makes peace. He kill, uh, creates evil. He kills. He makes alive. He wounds. He heals. He has made everything for its own end, yet even the wicked for a day of evil. Shall evil befall a city and the Lord hath not done it? Now he stands behind evil asymmetrically to the way he stands behind good. God is never ever the author of sin, nor can he tempt anyone to sin. But God uses primary and secondary causes. And God uses the wrath of man to bring praise to him. Let's think of a guy named Joseph. You all know Joseph, don't you? Joseph's in the Bible. He gets 12 big chapters in the book of Genesis. That's a lot of coverage in reference to biblical literature. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And Jacob gave him a coat of many colors. We're not sure what that is. It could be a coat with no stitching. Uh, it's hard to describe exactly what the coat of many colors was, but he had it and his brothers didn't. And it provoked in them an incredible rage of jealousy. So they decided, we got to do something about this guy named Joseph. And so they took him out, and we're going to throw him in a pit that he couldn't get out of and leave him there to die. But at that time, for some reason, there were some travelers, Ishmaelites, coming along. And so they said, i got a better idea. Let's sell him to these Ishmaelites into slavery. So they did. The Ishmaelites took him to Egypt, right? They took him to Egypt where he became ultimately the prime minister over Egypt. But he went through some harsh stuff. His brothers betrayed him. They went home and told Jacob, his father, Joseph is dead, that he was devoured. And so they went through that whole process. And so Joseph ends up in Egypt he goes through some rough time with Potiphar's wife. He does time in jail. He gets out of jail. He manages all the famine and the crops to where he gets elevated to a place of position. And ultimately, Joseph, uh, Jacob and his sons begin to starve. There's a famine in the land. So the brothers go down to see Egypt, and they go and do business with Jacob, uh, Joseph, not even knowing who Joseph is. And Joseph makes some rather remarkable comments. He says, what you did to me was used by God to send me ahead so I could provide for you. You see, the only reason Jesus and his seed was able to come was because Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into slavery, threw him in the pit, got him out, sent him to Egypt, and that's why Jesus came. You can trace it back. The seed was preserved. But secondly, Joseph says something rather amazing to his brothers. He said, you did what you did. You meant it to me for evil your intention was to kill me or destroy me but God did what he meant it for good to save much people alive maybe that will help you understand some of the victimization in life some of the things that have happened to you that are awful and terrible and unspeakable and horrible do you have to spend the rest of your life living in Terrible doubt and fear as if God doesn't love you because certain things happen to you in your life. Joseph is a 
radical example of someone who God allowed terrible things to happen to. He was, he was almost destroyed by, and yet at the, toward the close of his life, he confronts his brothers and shares with them what he learned in the process. God is sovereign. I didn't pick who my parents were. I didn't pick where I was born. There are a lot of choices in life I never made that I had to live with. But I trust that the sovereign hand of God is able to use those things in my life, whether negative or positive, to make me like Jesus, to conform me to the righteousness of Jesus. God is able because God is sovereign. He rules over all. There's one place, I'm sure a lot of gamblers in Las Vegas aren't sure that this isn't the Bible, but he says, man casts the lots or man casts the dice, but it's God who causes the spots to turn up. That's in the Bible. Did you know that? God even controls that too. I don't know who he's picking for the Super Bowl. I don't think he, bo <laughs> I don't think he bothers with that that much. Oh, it's so much here, so much here to say. And so God is also sovereign in redemption, not just in creation, not just in providence, not just in government, but let me say this one thing before I move on. Perhaps the most familiar to us in the matter of God's sovereignty as it respects evil are in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 4, verse 28, where the arch crime of human history, the crucifixion of Christ, is referred to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and the treatment meted out to Jesus in the conspiracy devised against him by Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel is referred to as that which the hand and counsel of God foreordained to come to pass. So the most wicked, heinous, evil thing that has ever occurred in the universe was both at one and the same time foreordained by God. It was his way and his wisdom of saving lost ma uh, mankind, those who would ultimately repent and believe in him. And he does it in the most unusual way. And at the same time, Jesus was crucified because people not out of their sovereignty, but out of their responsible choices, crucified the Lord of glory. They were responsible for what they did, and they were foreordained for what they did. Both are true. And so look what God can do. This is the only way to address the problem of evil. Because people always say, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a bad question. Number one, according to the Bible, there aren't any good people. There's no one good, no, not one. But bad things happen to Christians, right? Wouldn't you agree with that? Bad things happen to people who seem decent and respectable. Why? What kind of God is that? It, it does, does he not really love us or care about us? Or is he not powerful enough to do anything about it? Forever listen to this. He's already done something about it. And he will ultimately do something about it. What he's already done about it is send his son to become incarnate, to come into our world and live his life under the boundaries uh, as a human, united to his, his deity, 
And he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and he died the most inglorious, awful, awesome death in order to deliver us from our bondage to sin and, and put us in a right relationship with the one who spoke the world into existence. The cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Christ to the right hand means that God has already done something about it. And ultimately, when Christ returns, he will remake the heavens and the earth. Everything will be new and renewed when Christ returns. And so ultimately, everything will be made right. Judgment will come. Justice will fill the earth. And so don't sit around and let people act like they got one up on you because why doesn't God do something? He has done something. He's done the ultimate, and he will do something. Now, the reason why a lot of us have a hard time with that is God doesn't work on our timetable and our schedule. He doesn't take orders from us. He does it in a way that brings him the most glory and us the most good. Well, God's sovereignty is not the rule of an impersonal tyrant king the God who holds the world in his hands is my Father who adores me and regards me with delight. Since God is sovereign in every moment of our lives, is therefore filled with meaning. Nothing is insignificant. We're not left to blind fate or the winds of chance, but we have an anchor for our souls. What is the great comfort of God's sovereignty? God is in control. You could tell yourself that a hundred times a day. Why? Because this world on the surface appears to be chaotic. It appears to be out of control. There's so much around that can make us feel insecure. I mean, some people are saying we've got 12 years left on this planet, right? Well, I don't care if we have 12 years left. God's going to make it new. I mean, I care for people. I have compassion for people, yes. But, I mean, I'm not bothered by that. I know the one who holds the world in his hands. I know the one who spoke it into existence. I know the one who's going to make it new. I can go to sleep at night and not worry a single thing about any of that. Not because I'm superior, but because I read the Bible. And I understand what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is the index of reality. It's truth. We live with security in the face of things we do not understand because we know God is on the throne. He does understand, and he is for us, and he's not against us. God's sovereignty assures us that our sufferings are not punitive, that is punishment, but redemptive, and they deepen our communion with Christ. Eternal life has begun for us and will continue because God is sovereign. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. God's sovereignty is meticulous. Every detail is ordered by him. Now, philosophically, you can raise all kinds of questions about what I'm saying to you. Uh, I don't have time to get as in-depth with some of that as I might like, but what I'm proclaiming you to you today, what I want you to take home with you, is belief and rest in the hands of a sovereign God who is wiser 
and has more understanding than the combination of human history forever. The God whose ways are past finding out. He is transcendent in his wisdom. He knows what he's doing. Secondly, I want you to leave here knowing he's in control of every dimension of your life. And thirdly, I want you to leave here knowing you can trust him. Trust him. Does God always work it out the way I think it should be worked out? Does it always make sense to me? No. But I know he does all things well. And I know he's God. And I know what the cross says to me. And I know what the resurrection says to me. And I know what God's heart toward me is. And I can live with shalom, a sense of peace. Because my God and your God is sovereign. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that you are sovereign over all. And our hearts are deeply moved by this truth. We can't say that we can fully understand it. But we do know that the scriptures teach it. And so, Father, we pray that you would impress this upon our hearts and help us learn to integrate this truth at the core of our being because we're constantly facing the questions over and over again of trusting you. And so, Father, give us grace to do so. Now, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who rest in your sovereignty. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.